standing on the Texas Plains, oil rigs dot the landscape. But there, in the distance, rises another giant, the wind turbine. More than 22 gigawatts of power are supplied by wind energy in this Lone Star state, which claims the largest capacity in the U.S. If Texas was a country, it would be ranked sixth globally. The state, known for its rich oil and gas reserves, is leading us into the clean energy future. An unlikely hero for renewables, how did we get here? Electricity is vital to quality of life, but is it doing more harm than good? The energy sector is the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. Generation represents the largest share of these emissions. Demand reduction efforts like energy efficiency programs have significantly reduced consumption, but to truly have an impact, we need massive deployment of low-carbon energy sources. We need a clean energy revolution. No question, a revolution is underway, but while much of the excitement has been around technology advancements in the last few years, the truth is that disruptive innovation is slow-moving until it's not. Technologies like wind and solar are disrupting markets today, but took decades to commercialize. Meanwhile, two clean energy giants led the charge, hydropower and nuclear. What is their role in the clean energy future? Built in 1895, Niagara Falls served as the first hydroelectric power plant providing major generation in the U.S. It was the largest such plant in the world at that time. Ten years later, the federal government would look to hydropower to support water development projects in the West. These reclamation projects continued during World War I, increasing hydropower storage capacity. In 1940, President Roosevelt's New Deal policy aimed to create jobs and reduce the unemployment rate. The result was a push for hydroelectric power projects, including the Hoover Dam, which employed more than 20,000 workers. Hydropower would reach 40% of generation share in the U.S. But in the years that followed, growth would slow largely due to growing concerns around environmental impacts. Today, hydropower represents just 6% of total U.S. generation. Yet hydropower continues to be a stable and reliable energy source in the U.S. and is helping other regions of the world to meet rising demand. In China, the Three Gorges Dam, built in 2012, provides 22 gigawatts of electricity to the country. This is the equivalent of powering nearly 18 million American homes in the Northwest. Today, hydropower represents 71% of global renewable capacity. But opportunities to build giant dams are few and far between. Efforts to electrify existing non-powered dams could revive hydropower and secure its position in the new energy mix. And with the rise in renewables like wind and solar, hydropower could provide critical energy storage needed to balance the grid. Following World War II, scientists shifted their focus from nuclear weapons to nuclear energy. 
by 1960, nuclear energy was being commercialized in the U.S., but it would take another 10 years for clean energy to gain momentum. Amidst concerns over U.S. dependence on foreign oil in the 1970s and 80s, nuclear offered a domestic clean energy source. In the years that followed commercialization, nuclear saw significant growth, and by the year 2000, it represented 20% of U.S. electricity generation. A similar trend was seen globally as share grew to 17% by the mid-1990s. Nuclear seemed to be the answer to concerns about energy independence and clean air. But accidents like Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima slowed nuclear power construction worldwide. In the span of 20 years, no new plants were built in the U.S., and nuclear share of generation remained flat at 20%. Global share fell to 10%. More recently, due to the global shift away from fossil fuels, there has been a renewed interest in nuclear. Today, there are more than 50 power plants under construction around the world, but only two of them are here in the U.S., The future of nuclear energy is challenged by an aging base. In the U.S., more than half of the nuclear reactors operating today are 30 years old or more and nearing license expiration. High costs and significant delays in construction have forced the industry to turn to uprates and research into small modular reactors to stay competitive. One technology could hold the key to securing nuclear's future. Fusion uses hydrogen isotopes to produce four times the energy as traditional uranium fission. More power, less radioactive waste. But commercialization has been slow, and fusion likely won't be a viable contender without a significant breakthrough in research. Ultimately, a decarbonized future lies in the hands of wind and solar. Today, wind is one of the lowest-cost generation sources, taking into account capital and operating costs. Simply put, it costs less to build and operate a wind farm today than it does a fossil fuel plant over the lifetime of that investment. This is especially true in states like Texas, where regulatory and climate conditions are favorable to wind. Considered a mature technology, today wind provides 5% of electricity generated in the U.S. and has added an average 31% of new capacity to the electric grid over the last 10 years. Production tax credits have supported growth over the years, but other market forces have greatly influenced the shift from fossil fuel to renewables. Renewable portfolio standards now available in 29 states require electricity supply companies to produce a fraction of the electricity from renewable sources. These incentives, along with commitments from companies like Google and Amazon, or why wind is cost-effective today. Looking ahead, wind will continue to be a heavy contender for share of new generation. 
Investments are being made in new technologies that can further expand wind's reach into less favorable climates. Commercialization of offshore technologies could open up shorelines to wind around the world. The future looks promising. Not far behind is solar. Investment tax credits have facilitated recent growth in the U.S., but its rapid adoption has more to do with technology improvements and increasing global demand, driving down solar costs. In some regions of the world, solar is now a competitive option. Yet the share of solar today is still very small, less than 1% in the U.S. and globally. But that's expected to change very quickly. In 2016, solar was the largest source of new U.S. capacity additions, ahead of wind and natural gas. Globally, We see a similar trend emerging with China in the lead both in the manufacturing of solar cells and new installations. In the U.S., solar wouldn't be on the path it is today without government support. Since 2009, the Department of Energy invested billions in the development of innovative early stage technologies aimed at lowering costs and improving reliability and efficiency on the grid. By 2016, there were 28 utility scale solar plants in the U.S., and the cost to build these plants fell by nearly 60%. Solar cell research efforts continue with talk of promising technologies that offer significant improvements in efficiency. Due to its flexibility in application, the growth potential of solar is unmatched by other technologies. Longer term, solar is predicted to be the global leader of renewable generation. But while it's clear that wind and solar are the technologies of the future, what's not yet clear is whether grid infrastructure will be in place to facilitate rapid change. Efforts are underway to modernize the grid to be able to handle the massive distributed generation and intermittency that comes with renewables. This includes energy storage and smarter, more nimble grid communication technologies. How quickly we transition away from fossil fuels will depend on several factors. But we are witnessing a major disruption that will change the way electricity is generated, distributed, and consumed for years to come. The 2015 Paris Climate Accord. Calls for the limiting of global warming to no more than 2 degrees Celsius from pre industrial levels. To meet this goal would require near total decarbonization of global economic activity by 2060. For this industry, that's a tall order. Coal consumption is expected to decline, but will still be a significant part of the energy mix for the next 30 years, particularly in developing countries. Low fuel prices are keeping natural gas plants in the game, at least in the short term. Early retirement of these fossil fuel plants is critical to the timeline. What could accelerate our progress and what threatens it? What technologies and policies will be critical to the shift from fossil fuels to renewables? 
These are the questions that the Business Innovation and Climate Change Initiative team at UVA Darden's Batten Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation are trying to answer in a new report titled Path to 2060, Decarbonizing the Electric Utility Industry. The report reviews four generation technologies, hydropower, nuclear, wind, and solar, and discusses the levers needed to facilitate the shift to a clean energy future. Here to discuss these topics further is Mike Lennox, UVA Darden School of Business Professor, Senior Associate Dean, and Chief Strategy Officer. We've also invited two guests to provide an industry perspective. Devin Welch is a partner and vice president of business development at SunTribe Solar, and Eric Haug is the business development manager at Apex Clean Energy. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. My first question is to you, Mike. Why is decarbonization so important in this sector, and what technologies hold the most promise for a clean energy future? So the energy sector broadly and the electric utility sector specifically are some of the largest contributors to greenhouse gases uh, in the world. Uh, So if we're going to address climate change, you really have to address this sector. In terms of promising technologies, I think the ones that are probably top of mind to everyone is uh, solar and wind at this point, showing uh, incredible promise and incredible success already. Now, many supporters of coal point to regulation and renewables as reasons behind its decline. But there's another reason why coal plants are going out of business. Can you speak to the influence that natural gas is having on this market now and in the future? Yeah, I think uh, you know the correct answer to why coal has been in decline is that natural gas prices are at all-time lows. And as a result, the simple economics are it doesn't make sense to build a coal-fired power plant. It's much cheaper to build a natural gas plant. And in fact, we're seeing the retirement of coal-fired plants earlier than maybe uh, would typically be the life of the plant because of the economics there. Um, I like to say when we think about what's been one of the biggest innovations in the energy sector the past decade, most clearly it's been it's been fracking uh, and horizontal drilling because that's created an incredible supply of natural gas, which has driven down its uh, price and, again, has really affected the economics of uh, the energy sector. Mm-hmm. And in a way, natural gas is, is, is helping to pave the way for the growth of renewables, right? I think so. I mean, in terms of uh, impact of, of greenhouse gas emissions, natural gas is as far favorable to uh, to coal, though, of course, solar and wind and other renewables mm-hmm. are far superior to natural gas in those regards as well. Mm-hmm. And longer term, in terms of pricing, I think, um, uh, you know, renewables has the opportunity to longer term beat out natural gas because, I mean, renewables have a zero fuel cost and yeah, and we're, and we're already seeing that occur mm-hmm. in many parts of the, the United States and parts of the world where solar and wind are low cost, uh, the low-cost options. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes them most appealing is they are on uh, improvement curves where they could likely trump um, the fossil fuel uh, sources by quite a bit in the very near future here. Mm-hmm. Um, harder to see why our natural gas will continue to come down at the rate it has come down in recent years. In fact, I think it's, it's not unreasonable to see scenarios where natural gas prices will actually come up in the future, just creating even a greater spread between uh, renewables and, and fossil fuel. 
Sure. That's one of the challenges that uh, I think utilities are really grappling with around the country right now is the fact that natural gas um, investments usually have a 25 or 30 year recapture period. And so those are very long term investments in generation. And given some of the uh, incredible price declines that we've seen in solar, especially and in wind, uh, it's difficult for them to justify making those large capital investments, recognizing that uh, those investments and those plants might be economically unviable in a relatively short period of time, certainly before they fully recapture that capital expense. Mm-hmm. Now, renewables represented the greatest share of new capacity additions last year, and it, we're seeing that um, trend emerge. Uh, where are you seeing the greatest demand and growth for renewables in the U.S., and what's driving this demand? Eric, why don't we start with the wind industry? Sure. Well, I think there's really three main factors that are driving growth in general. It's the economic fundamentals, like you were mentioning before, that in several markets, we're seeing that wind is ultimately the cheapest form of new build capacity. Solar is right on its heels. In some cases, it's it's on par. Um, Second is, I think, the market growth for corporate and industrial buyers. Typically, those buyers, um, you've seen news stories about Microsoft, Google, Apple, all these big tech companies in California are buying renewables in the wind belt. So we're seeing that market explode in a way that is even faster than I think people predicted a couple of years ago. Uh, 122 companies have now committed to 100% renewable energy in this country. And over in the Fortune 500, there's more than half of them have either succinct sustainability goals or renewable energy goals specifically. So they are on a path to buy, and that's really helping us uh, – plan our next few years of portfolio based on their level of interest. And then third is is the utility segment that's really stocking up on all of the supply it can handle before tax credits begin to wind down in 2020. So those three factors combined really help us at the high level. In a market-by-market level, we could talk specifically about that, but I'll mention that Texas, the Southwest Power Pool in Oklahoma and Kansas, those are two hotbeds for wind. Um, But more and more, we're seeing interest in the PJM market, which is really the mid-Atlantic region, where solar and wind prices are now competitive against natural gas power. Great. Do you want to add for solar? Sure. Yeah, I think Eric hit the nail on the head there. Um, There's a couple of large drivers, um, the most important of which is the fact that solar and wind are now least-cost resources. So um, here in Virginia, Dominion considers them a least-cost resource, and that's a reason we've seen an incredible uptick in the amount of uh, renewable energy RFPs that are going out nationwide. So when you look at the component of utility-scale solar that's being built in the U.S., the largest uh, component of that this year and the fastest growing is actually voluntary procurement. So it's no longer renewable portfolio standards or mandates coming from a policy level. It's actually an economic decision to invest in what they consider to be the cheapest form of generation available. Um, as far as what's gotten us to this point, again, I think Eric hit it right on the head. It's really been uh, demand coming from corporate America. So uh, Eric mentioned that a, a number of companies have come forward and made renewable energy pledges. We're now starting to see the next wave of those commitments where we're seeing a number of of Fortune 500 companies actually committing to 110 and 120% um, renewable targets. So they're actually going beyond just satisfying um, sort of their own sustainability goals, but looking to have a negative impact on the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere. And Eric, you you touched on tax incentives. Uh, They're set to expire in the next several years. So what impacts, if any, do you anticipate uh, in the wind industry, and what are companies doing to prepare for that? 
Well, I think conventional wisdom is that the next 16 to 24 months are going to be incredible for the renewables industry as there's a convergence of a couple trends and it's reducing the cost of the technology and the supply chain, um, you know, building more big cranes that can install these massive turbines. These things are all enabling us to create new projects at a, an accelerated rate to capture that that 100% value of the tax credits. Solar is on a little bit different um, timeline in terms of how their credits wind down. And so, you know, we're really running as fast as we can at Apex to take advantage of this. Um, I think there'll probably be some lumpy moments in terms of the market in 2020 and 2021 because people are trying to pull forward a lot of activity they would ordinarily take um, years to do. We're, we're squishing that period into a, a, a shorter time frame. But I, I will also say that right now we're at a, a moment where the capital markets in general have a lot of access to, to money that they want to deploy. Part of that's a result of the tax reform that, that is causing repatriation of cash. Um, part of that is the, these projects really are economically very strong when they're compared to other infrastructure investments. And speaking of impacts, Devin, last month we saw that President Trump approved tariffs on solar modules imported into the U.S. Can you talk a little about how that might affect the solar industry, both in the short and long term? Yeah, so that was a disappointing result. Um, It was something that the entire solar industry expected and we've known was coming for some time. The reason it's disappointing is I don't think it'll actually accomplish any of what it set out to do. Um, Unfortunately, the you know the duration of the tariffs that were imposed and the way they stepped down over time won't be enough to galvanize real uh, manufacturing enough capable of meeting domestic demand here in the U.S. So it won't actually create the jobs it purports to do. But what it will do is will temporarily create a headwind on the pricing for solar and and slow down uh, installations. The estimates that I've seen industry wide are roughly twenty three thousand jobs and seven gigawatts of solar that likely won't be deployed in the near term. But that is very much a bump in the road. It is by no means the whole story. That is a short-term headwind. Um, The way that the tariff steps down and the um, continual improvement in the fundamental economics of solar uh, lead to a very bright future. And uh, we're going to continue to see sort of meteoric growth. Uh, A lot of the utility-scale projects um, that were um, agreed to prior to the tariff um, have accommodated this tariff not by asking for price relief in terms of the uh, uh, delivered cost of energy, but actually in terms of time relief. They've just asked for another year or two for the market to respond. So um, uh, overall, I think this tariff has had a a short impact, but long-term, the story remains the same. Critics of wind and solar point to intermittency issues and concerns around reliability. Not surprisingly, these critics advocate for baseload power plants like coal and nuclear. What needs to happen on the grid level to address these concerns, Mike? Clearly, intermittency is a, is a big issue um, long-term that we need to think about. Um, what I would first point out is that in the short run, it's, it's not going to be much of a problem, mainly because the installed base of solar and wind is not that high. Uh, you see estimates of around 30 to 40 percent is when we start to really have to, uh, to address that issue. Um, I think there's a couple you know, future paths to address it. One, of course, is the grid itself uh, and the ability to create uh, efficiencies and a smart grid that will allow for sharing of energy in ways that could deal with some of the intermittency loads. Um, and the second thing is going to be storage. Uh, how do we create storage solutions to leverage the you know, production of energy when it's occurring and then utilize it when it's in, uh, in demand and need? Um, so I think those uh, investments and innovation in both storage and the grid technology are going to be critical to go in concert with solar.
solar and wind as they become more of the installed base of our of our energy production. And as renewables become more distributed, I think utilities are going to have to revisit their business models. So you can speak to that. Yeah, it, it, it's more than just a pure technology issue here. There's issues around dynamic pricing that ultimately go to the kind of fundamental business models that utilities face. And so we're going to have to think about uh, how we evolve those models for utilities in a world in which you have potentially you know, thousands of distributed, if not millions of distributed uh, energy production sources all feeding into a grid uh, dynamically you know, talking with one another. Uh, so I think that is going to you know, invite business model innovation for utilities. And talking about the technologies on the grid, uh, Devin, maybe you can talk to some of the technologies you're seeing uh, to help bring renewable solar in specifically uh, to the market. Sure, yeah. Um, what Mike said about um, the promise of battery storage, uh, affordable battery storage, um, is right on. There is a tremendous market opportunity for battery, something that uh, is often recounted at, at solar conventions and, and industry events is, is the notion that if you really want to be successful, batteries is actually a much larger <laughs> opportunity in the long run. Um, the learning curve on batteries is roughly 21%, um, which is a fantastic learning curve, and we're seeing doubling. Uh, we're seeing doublings happening in roughly 18-month periods, 18 to two, 24 months. So um, incredible cost declines that match what we've seen in solar. And their ability um, to regulate the grid and spread out the production um, from intermittent sources is, um, is yielding to um, additional grid benefits. Um, you're seeing uh, better frequency regulation, better voltage regulation. It's actually a more stable grid that they're able to provide. And so already we're seeing a lot of utilities that had plans for people plants, scrapping those plans, recognizing that they won't be able to get them across the finish line before batteries are at a point where they're actually cost competitive with that grid function. So um, that's estimated to only be about four years away. But we're also seeing other technologies like smart grid, um, smart meters being deployed. Um, this year in Virginia, Dominion um, has uh, asked the SEC and the General Assembly for permission to do a fairly massive deployment of smart grid technology. And so the grid is getting more stable, it's getting smarter, and all that leads to a much more promising future for these renewable energy sources and these distributed sources all working together in tandem, taking advantage of the power of big data and emerging technologies like blockchain to help regulate uh, the energy flow in a two-directional marketplace um, grid, which is very different from the way the grid was originally designed for one-way power flows. If I could add to that, I I kind of consider there to be two mechanisms for optimizing this, low-tech and high-tech. And high-tech is just what Devin was saying, that there's an opportunity to analyze data in a, in a way, either from the, the generator side at the, at the plant, uh, the wind plant or the solar plant, or from the grid side to, to help manage demand, to help manage response. Those, those things are very analytical, very um, technical in nature, but they can produce a lot more resiliency than we have today. Um, in terms of low-tech solutions, we like to think about attracting uh, loads rather than producing energy. Find a place where we know someone will build a physical plant that can take advantage of our supply um, you know, adequately. So having data centers be free to locate anywhere in the country really can be paired with wind and solar in places where it makes the most sense from a resource standpoint. And then finally, I would say hybrid agreements, another kind of low-tech um, solution. It's a financial engineering mechanism where we can provide both wind and solar to help mitigate some of the intermittency or the volatility issues we see with when the solar is available, when the wind is available. Um, we just put out an article about 
time of day and, and seasonality impacts to uh, renewables and, and how that helps the grid actually. Wind produces in the winter and at night when people run their heat and solar produces in the summer and during the day obviously when people run their AC. So there are impacts that these renewables have that are in some ways much better than the old way of doing business. Great. So, Mike, the big question. Will we get to total decarbonization by 2060? So, uh, um, we joke about how making predictions can make a fool of yourself. But uh, I, I, say, I think I would say it is possible, but it's going to be difficult. And it's going to be difficult for the following reason. One is uh, just the installed base that already exists and the life cycle of some of these uh, assets we have, um, plants that are already in existence. And then the other is global, on a global basis, we're seeing you know, continued – exponential growth in the demand for electricity. Uh, and as a result, there's going to be the need to be continued build out uh, of assets there. And, you know, coal-fired power plants are being continued to be built in China and other regions of the world. Um, with that said, I'm an optimist. And, and I think, you know, with concerted effort from a number of institutional players, including the government, the private sector as well, um, I think we can get there. I, I am optimistic that we're going to see improvements in the technology on the renewable side in which they will likely become the low-cost, you know, uh, dominant low-cost technology in the very near future here. I could see a future within 10 years where we look back on this day and age and, and we're just shocked that we even thought that uh, fossil fuels were, the, you know, a good technology to, to pursue. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic there. I'm just cautious about 2060 given kind of the overall energy infrastructure that needs to transform to achieve that goal. Devin or Eric, do you, do you have any thoughts on what maybe could help facilitate quicker adoption of renewables? Sure, yeah. I'm an optimist, just to sort of add on there. I think uh, this tech, this transformation of our energy system, the way we produce power, is happening at a rate much faster than most observers have been able to predict accurately. I think we're constantly seeing revisions, downward resi- revisions of time targets for where we're hitting these different targets in terms of pricing for renewables. And so um, when I look at somebody uh, who is investing in a coal-powered power uh, power plant right now, I think there's probably a pretty strong likelihood of, of that becoming a, a stranded asset on a balance sheet somewhere and getting written off. Um, we're dealing with an exponential technology with renewable energies. It's very different from the kind of incremental gains that we've seen in, in fossil fuel space. And at, a, at the most basic and fundamental level, there's no input required other than sunshine or wind, both of which don't have an economic cost associated with them. So it's difficult for me to look 30 years in the future and imagine a scenario where any uh, generation system that requires an input that needs to be harvested and transported to site would be able to be cost competitive with a technology that doesn't require that input. So I'm very optimistic about how quickly we'll get there. I think 2060 is a is a great target to have. Eric, do you share that optimism? I, I do, but Maybe I would phrase it in terms of we know we're increasing renewables. We know there's a phase out of of aging fossil plants. Most of the coal plants in this country were built in the 70s. Um, So we know it's coming. But the question is how can we bend the curve in in our industry and what we do day to day? So how can I bend the curve to accelerate some of those um, inefficiencies? And policy is a big wild card. You know, we have had renewal of tax credits. We've had the threaten, you know, threatening that they're going to be removed on almost an annual basis. We've had different administrations come in and really set different priorities in terms of how we go forward. And, and so this will always be a wild card is are there going to be state-specific policies, uh, federal policies that either price carbon or incentivize uh, the replacement of inefficient units? And so, 
you know, we've looked around the country and, and this will always be something that can either really accelerate or really slow us down. But the, the curve's going in the right direction. This industry is heavily regulated. And so there, uh, it is underpinned by um, decades of regulation that are really designed for a different reality than what we have now based on the technology that's recently become available. And so um, there are entrenched players um, uh, that have uh, built-in incentives that, that don't necessarily align with the future of where we're trying to get to. And so uh, part of what we need to do as an industry is make sure that we're approaching um, the task of transforming our electric system uh, in a very open and multi-stakeholder engagement kind of um, way. Um, we want to make sure that we're considering uh, viable paths for where utilities can move to, viable paths for where regulators can move to, viable paths for where renewable energy um, can can grow. So um, I think uh, an openness is important to sort of how we tackle this problem and accelerate that deployment. Great. Thanks to all of you for providing your perspectives on the electric utility sector. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. More information on the decarbonization of the electric utility industry can be found in our report titled Path to 2060, Decarbonizing the Electric Utility Industry, available on the Business Innovation and Climate Change Initiative website at www.darden.virginia.edu forward slash innovation hyphen climate. Join us for our next podcast where we explore the industrial sector. This is Becky Duff for Research and Relevance at Darden.